G'day. We hope you're enjoying our podcast. Producing a podcast is costly, both time and money. If you'd like to show your support and offer a one-off payment, even the price of a coffee or a beer, that'd be greatly appreciated and would go a long way to support us. If you'd like to leave a donation, head to the show notes of this episode and click on the ACAST supporter link. Be sure to leave your message of support too. Thanks again. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The thoughts and opinions shared in this podcast are just that. It's up to the listener to decide what is true and what is not true. This podcast contains coarse language, references to violence, sexual abuse and murder, and may not be suitable for everyone. Discretion is advised. This is Who Killed Leanne Holland. Welcome to Who Killed Leanne Holland. This is episode 22. Yes, we did say that there would be no more episodes six months ago. Uh, However, here we are. And this one is called, quite fittingly, When Good Men Do Nothing. G'day, Graham. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Jamie. How are you going, mate? Long time no speak. Uh, It has been a while, mate. Yeah, I'm well. I'm well. Uh, You know, things are keeping keeping me busy, kids and family and work. But uh, how about yourself? Yes. We did have that chat two months ago uh, from Europe, of course, which we'll talk about a bit later. My wife and I have only recently come back from Europe, as you know. My son lives in Sweden, so we we had some fantastic time living over there with Cameron and Zoya and our two grandchildren, which we met for the first time, Vivian and Chloe. I know Cam and Zoya will be listening, so hi, guys. We miss you, and we'll see you as soon as we can. How long are you in Europe for in total? Four months, mate. Two months with uh, Cameron and Zoya, and then two months traveling around, so it was an epic trip, actually. Yeah, what was the highlights? Uh, what were the highlights? There were so many. River Cruise was good. Seeing the grandchildren. <laughs> Morocco was good. <laughs> yeah. Um, Portugal, Spain. But no, just uh, mainly just catching up with the family. We don't see Cameron that often anymore, so it was good to spend time with him. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And before we dive into this case, You're working on a few things too, aren't you, Graham? I am a murder up in North Queensland, up near Cooktown, where the victim's body has never been recovered. I hope to broadcast that podcast in the next two months or so. And a young woman who supposedly committed suicide, which has got a few question marks around it. So I'm looking at that case as well. And how about you? Yeah, mate. Um. I am being swamped at uh, with with life in general, but I am working on something very slowly. I was introduced to somebody uh, through a mutual friend, and she is from New Zealand originally. Uh, when she was ten years old, her mum was murdered, and 
someone was charged but never convicted and it's always been a goal to find out for herself who killed her mother in such horrific circumstances. So I am going to dive into that. It's just a very slow and steady process. But uh, yeah, keep an eye out on the, the 610 Media Instagram and Facebook page and likewise for you, Graham, for the Graham Crowley Investigations page to keep updated with uh, future podcasts. Well, I'd say your New Zealand friend is in good hands, Jamie, with you. So, And likewise, mate, likewise. I actually, the other day, just uh, was having a chat to somebody, totally didn't know who you were, this person, uh, in, our, in our friendship, and they said, oh, I just listened to um, a Sandrine podcast. Uh, what They didn't know what it was called, Bring Home Sandrine or Missing Sandrine, and I'm like, oh, that was great. That was my friend, <laughs> and she absolutely loved it. So, oh, good. There you go. Mm. Yeah. It's been hugely popular, and hopefully we'll yeah. get a result there. We'll, we'll get some information out of it anyway. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, and also uh, on the Facebook feedback and, and feedback in general, not just our own podcast, but Who Killed Leanne Holland has been inundated. Um, our inboxes have been inundated with feedback of every kind. So, thank you for that. And uh, please keep spreading um, the message to your friends, family, anyone who you think might like to listen and spread the word about Leanne's case. So, thank mm, you. That's right. And on that Barrister Joe Crowley and I are continuing our rewrite of this whole sorry saga in a new book, and we hope to have that out soon. We'll let you know anyway. Yes. So how far through that are you? Mate, uh, we're almost finished writing, starting to look at editing and so on. So, yep. yeah, we're, we're getting there. Nice. All right. Well, in, Mar- in March 2023, a listener wrote to the Attorney General requesting an inquest into the murder of Leanne Holland. And she received a reply on the 18th of April. The Attorney-General said this in part. Despite several extensive investigations by the Queensland Police Service and continued media attention regarding the death of Miss Holland, no new or compelling evidence has been found to date. As a result, I do not consider that it is in the public interest for me to direct the State Coroner to hold an inquest or conduct an investigation as there appears to be no new evidence for the state coroner to consider, or that would answer the questions that remain open about Miss Holland's death. While I appreciate that there is public interest in determining the circumstances and assigning responsibility for Miss Holland's death, that must be weighed against what can be achieved by an investigation or inquest where there is no new evidence that has not already been considered in the extensive investigations and legal processes already undertaken in this matter. We have posted the full AG response on the website, whokilledleanholland.com, also on the Facebook page and on Graham Crowley Investigations podcast Facebook page. It comes as no surprise that the Attorney-General refused her request. Yes, the Attorney-General must be getting sick of... um applications for an inquest into Leanne Holland, all of which are refused. Following that listener's application, I wrote to the Attorney-General in April 2023 to draw her attention to all three podcasts that I'm involved in and stating that, in my opinion, her intervention in all matters was urgently required. And this is part of what I wrote, Jamie. Leanne Holland, your office is well aware of this murder and the quashing of the conviction of Graham Stewart Stafford. Our 21-episode podcast is an in-depth review of her murder, the botched police investigation, the significant evidence that came out after the conviction, 
and the continued refusal by your office to hold a coronial inquest. A strong circumstantial and forensic case until it wasn't. The significant evidence that Graham Stafford did not murder Leanne Holland, the quashing of his conviction, the DPP refusing to prosecute him again, and as you know, an inquest has never been held in relation to her death, despite that being a requirement under Queensland legislation. I respectfully suggest, Attorney-General, as Queensland's first lawmaker, you are breaking your own laws. I asked a retired Chief Dipendry Magistrate to review the relevant Coroner's Act, the old Act and the new Act. He agreed with me. But please do not take his word for it. You employ a whole battery of lawyers. I am confident they will give you the same legal advice. Please do not listen to the Queensland Police Service when they tell you, which they have done in the past, that a coronial hearing is not necessary. It is in the public interest to hold an inquest. I am requesting that under Section 16, Bracket 5 of the Coroner's Act 1958, you direct an inquest be held immediately. I received a reply in August 2023. In part, she wrote this. As you know, the Coroner's Act 1958 Queensland is the relevant legislation under which the Attorney-General has a discretion to determine whether to, to direct that an inquest is held into a death. When exercising this discretion, key considerations are taken into account on whether the holding of an inquest is necessary and whether it is in the public interest to do so. The Attorney-General may be persuaded that an inquest should be held where there is new cogent, reliable evidence or other new information comes to light. Unfortunately, in the cases of Leanne Holland and Sandrine Jordan, evidence of the nature required has not been provided to the Attorney-General to enable her to exercise the discretion to consider a request to direct the State Coroner to open an inquest in either matter. Further to this, anyone may also request an inquest by writing to the State Coroner outlining why it is in the public interest. We have placed the Attorney-General letter in full on the website, whokilledtheannaholland.com, and also the Facebook page, and on Graham Crowley's Facebook page. No mention at all of an inquest being required to be held under Queensland legislation, and perhaps not happy with our reporting, Graham. Yes, Jamie. Totally ignored my comment that she was breaking her own laws. A claim supported by one of her previous own employees, as a matter of fact, the retired stipendary magistrate. I was always taught that if a claim or an allegation was levelled at you and you are aware of that and you did not deny it or you do not deny it, then you own it. So, Attorney General, I take it that you accept the claim you are breaking your own laws. Well, there you have it. So, Graham, I'm guessing that more than 99% of our listeners do not recall from our podcast the name Vishal Laxman. We mentioned him briefly in episodes five and eight, and he was the DPP prosecutor assigned to prosecute the murder charge against Graham Stafford, but he refused to do so. The first and only time in his 30-year career, he refused to prosecute a case. He believed Graham Stafford was innocent. Did the director of the DPP listen to him? Of course not. Another prosecutor was assigned in his place. 
In episode five, we read out a quote he gave a journalist in 2010, 18 years later, when he was promoting his then recently published memoirs. We understood the quote he gave the journalist was the sum of his comments on the matter. Jamie, I've made this comment before and I'm happy to say it again. This is the case that just keeps on giving. When you think you're finished, something else comes out from the woodwork. It's just incredible. Mm. It was only recently I was provided with Vishal's actual comments in his memoirs on the Graham Stafford case, all 22 pages. I couldn't believe it. Vishal Laxman wrote 22 pages in his memoirs relating to the Stafford case. He wrote of his thoughts and feelings about the case, and he also reproduced segments of a memorandum he wrote to the Director of Public Prosecutions, the DPP, in December 1991. We reproduce here some of his memorandum as it appeared in his memoirs. These are his words, but not his voice. I refer to our brief discussion regarding this matter. Stafford has been committed for trial and the evidence is entirely circumstantial. There are features in this case that give rise to some doubt that Stafford is the offender in this crime. Can we have a discussion at some later date? The victim was subjected to a very violent attack with a blunt instrument in which she sustained head injuries. One would expect extensive bleeding at the scene of the crime. On all available evidence, if the accused is the perpetrator, the killing must have occurred in the dwelling house that he occupied with the deceased family. There is no extensive evidence of bleeding in the house. The evidence of blood in the house may have little impact because the deceased lived there. And it would be expected if there was any bleeding in the domestic setting through injuries or whatever, that may explain the presence of blood. There is no evidence of blood in the sink or drain pipes from the shower in the bathroom. There is blood in the boot of the car which belonged to the accused. It is a very small quantity and part of it is on a blanket which is normally kept in the back of the car. The blood on the blanket loses some of its force, again, because the deceased would have had access to the blanket, even if no witness can testify to that. A blanket is a mobile object which apparently was kept in the car. There is insufficient bleeding in the boot if the deceased was disposed of by being first placed in the boot of the car. This alone may not be of any significance. At the relevant times when she must be dead, she is seen by a large number of witnesses, particularly in the afternoon. Some of these witnesses have resiled from their earlier statements, and some have not. It may be possible to discount all of them, and this is a matter which needs some discussion. There is a maggot found in the boot of the car, and there is no appropriate explanation for this. On all available evidence, the accused must have disposed of the body long before the body would be in a necessary state of decay for maggots to form. It is difficult to pit a dead maggot as a crown witness against witnesses who say that they have seen the deceased. The accused has given an account of his movements, and it is possible to show that some of the things he said were incorrect. The significant one being that on the date in question, he had visited a doctor in the afternoon. The evidence would be that he had seen the doctor on the following day. 
However, there are not a large number of discrete lies to be found on the whole of the evidence. The medical evidence suggested that the deceased was tortured and there are some burn marks on her body. I am informed by the police that the accused does not smoke. This may or may not be of any significance, but it does not appear to fit the pattern of the accused behaviour as known to us. I think in the light of Chamberlain and the Queen, we would need to look carefully at circumstantial evidence of a scientific nature. Chamberlain's case set us back a decade, and if possible, no doubt, we would like to avoid the same sort of thing happening again. I have done many circumstantial evidence cases over the years, and this is one of the few in which I find myself having some reservations as to whether the accused is the perpetrator of this crime. I may not entertain any such view after some discussion with you, but it would be desirable if you would be good enough to look at the material yourself and let me have your comments sometime next year. Visual Laxman's full writing regarding the prosecution of Graham Stafford is too big to place on the website or Facebook page. Instead, we've placed a link to his memoirs in the show notes called Flight from Paradise and available from Amazon. There is no record of the result of the meeting he was requesting. It can be assumed a meeting was held and the meeting gave him no comfort. On the contrary, it is likely it reinforced his belief in Stafford's innocence to the point where he refused to prosecute the case and then told no one about it. I am just so frustrated. Vishal Laxman waited 18 years to tell his story. In the interim, so much happened regarding this case. Graham Stafford served a 15-year prison sentence. In the same period, his conviction for murder was quashed. It comes as no surprise that the DPP declined to prosecute him again. Excuses were provided at the time, but at the bottom line, Jamie, the DPP simply did not have enough evidence to prosecute him. It was Laxman's public comments in 2010 that helped force the QPS to conduct its farcical, self-serving review of their original investigation, the results of which surprised no one. The ripple effect of Graham Stafford's conviction for murder across the community was considerable and is still felt today, more than 30 years later. Do you think, Graham, that by refusing to prosecute, uh, which he'd never done in three decades of, of his career, that's doing enough as a message? Do you think that's what, maybe what he thought? No. Why didn't he come out and say something? Why did well, he yeah. not? Why did he not be, say something public? Well, why did he wait eighteen years to mm. to to say something? Just so yeah. annoying. Mm. Yeah, it's frustrating. There is a saying, and it has not been attributed to anyone in particular. And the saying goes. The only thing necessary for evil to triumph in the world is that good men do nothing. So, Vishal Laxman, you are no doubt a good man. You've done this um, country a good service in your career, but you did nothing and you could have, and indeed you should have. Evil prevailed. You retired in 92. Just imagine what could have been done or happened had you spoken publicly then. Many people could have been spared a lot of pain. There is another comment I consider appropriate here. 
complicit by silence. What about the director of public prosecutions? He was aware of Laxman's concerns, so why didn't he do something? I couldn't agree more, mate. It's a stain, really, on the office of the DPP. They knew what was going on in the background. They knew that their prosecutor, who had been given the case, was refusing to do it. They could see that there were problems with the case, but, oh, no, let's box on. Mm. What has to be done before an inquest is held? You know, an inquest is required by law, but, no, they don't want to play that game. Jamie, you're aware of the story, but the listeners are not. Earlier this year, I listened to a podcast by an award-winning UK television producer, journalist and podcaster, Naomi Chennel. She has a podcast called Real True Crime. The seven-part podcast covered the case of Luke Mitchell in Scotland. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In 2013, when he was 14 years old, Luke was arrested and convicted of the murder of his 14-year-old girlfriend. Fast forward 20 years, Luke, now 34 years, remains in prison. He continues to deny involvement in the murder. But what struck me when I listened to that podcast was the similarities to the Holland story. Ten years apart, continents apart, but tunnel vision by police a limited window of opportunity, no blood, semen or DNA, but DNA present on five other men in the Mitchell case, no witnesses, no confession, poor police investigation, other men more likely to have been the offender, and the list goes on. And to add to the mix, the sheer bloody-mindedness of the Scottish police and judiciary to accept any suggestion of problems with the case. Yeah, sounds familiar. I did listen to Naomi's um, episodes on on the Mitchell case and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it and did find it just as frustrating as you did, Graham. Yeah, just so many similarities and yet continents apart. And this focus by the police, they get someone in their sights and no matter what the evidence says, that's our man and we're going to get him. So anyway... We were in Sweden and I contacted Naomi because I was over there. It was only like an hour time difference. And so it was so easy to, to contact her. And so we had a, we had a few conversations and Naomi agreed to a chat with you and me. As you know, I felt our listeners would be interested in the Mitchell case. Mm-hmm. Couldn't agree more. I'm also joined by Graham Crowley, who is actually in Sweden at the moment and Naomi Channel who is a TV producer from London. So we are talking about her podcast called Real True Crime. So we're very lucky to have her on board. So welcome to the show, Naomi and Graham. Hi, Jamie. Hi, Jamie. Hello. How are we all? I'm well, thanks. Yes. Not so sunny Sweden. 
Yeah, I'm in a, in, a, in a stormy London. It's raining, it's grey, but it's our peak summer month, so. Well, yeah, so <laughs> right now it's, you know, the middle of winter. Haven't worn a jumper in three weeks or a sweater or yeah. a hoodie, whatever you call it. So pretty lucky yeah. here on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland and, and Graham's about an hour south of me when he's um, Australia side. So we're pretty lucky on this side of the world. Yeah, I mean, your country's beautiful as well with your history and everything. It's it's not bad. It's got its perks, definitely. Mm. Yeah. And I'd recommend anyone who wants to listen to a good true crime podcast, you should look up Real and listen to Naomi's episodes on Luke Mitchell, which is, yeah, very, very sad and very confronting because there's a lot of stake there. Having a 14-year-old victim and a 14-year-old um, perpetrator, it's pretty intense. You know, the stakes are real. So, I, yeah, I highly exactly. recommend everyone yep. to go and listen to that and uh, get involved in the Facebook um, communities with that and um, have, a, have a deep dive with Naomi. And we've got links to Naomi's um, podcast in the show notes. And we're fortunate we can also talk to Naomi and she can tell us about Luke Mitchell and the murder that he was convicted of. Thank you. It's been described as Scotland's shame. And I actually came across this case because I'd done two previous long parters. So I did one called His Name Was Stuart Lubbock. And he was a man who was found dead in one of the biggest TV presenters in the UK in his swimming pool. He'd been raped and murdered. And there was nine people at that party, eight people left alive. One of them killed him, but no one's been convicted. So that's a, that was a really interesting one. And that was a local case. And then I did one on a lady called Claudia Lawrence, who's still missing. That's a missing persons case. And then I was thinking about what to do for my third one. And I always thought that I would go with unsolved cases or ones, you know, where the family were appealing for justice. And this doesn't fit into that. This is completely different. This is a potential miscarriage of justice. But I couldn't escape it online. There were so many people talking about it and not just talking about it, but were actually sleuthing, you know, they were actually investigating this from their armchairs. Sometimes that can be a hindrance. Sometimes that's quite interesting. So I looked into this case a bit more and I couldn't believe there was no forensic evidence connecting Luke Mitchell to the murder of his 14-year-old girlfriend, Jodie Jones. Her murder was absolutely brutal. And this, this will be really hard to hear, but this is her story. You know, she was almost decapitated. She had her breast cut off. She was beaten. She was strangled. Her throat was slit. She was naked and she was bound. And how on earth a 14-year-old boy could be arrested for this within hours of them finding her body when he had dirty fingernails, he had dirty hair, he was unwashed, but yet there was not a shred of forensic evidence from Jodie onto him and vice versa. There was no forensic evidence of Luke on Jodie. But there were other unknown male DNA profiles. But still somehow Luke managed to get convicted. So in this in this podcast, it's a seven part podcast and we I interview Luke from prison and it's the first time that he's really had his say and because Luke did do a documentary with Channel 5 here in the UK. It was called Murder in a Small Town because where this all happened is a really completely remote part of Scotland, not far from Glasgow. 
And what happened when that documentary came out was Facebook groups were started, teams were put together. People felt so strongly about this case and that Luke was potentially innocent that they wanted, you know, to, to get a review of the case. The sad thing is the case has been rebuffed for review, I think four times now. And one of the main reasons for that, guys, is because I believe that this is the case. And I'm sure when I say this next sentence, you might agree. But the Lord Advocate, who is refusing to have this go to retrial, is married to the man who prosecuted Luke in the case. So it's not, it's, this is not an unbiased process that it's been going through. And in, in December, it was reported that, you know, there was a whistleblower. Someone has said that, you know, uh, the samples from the case, including Jody's fingernails, were being destroyed. Now, they should be held in evidence because, you know, he is still trying to appeal his conviction, you know, all these years later down the line. But they had started destroying them. And so we'll go into all of that on the podcast. It is, like I say, it's seven episodes, so it is quite in-depth. It's completely unbiased. And I will categorically say, I don't know for sure if Luke Mitchell was innocent. I can never fully ever know that. But I strongly believe that this case needs to be reviewed properly by a complete, someone who is not involved in this at all. And there are people working pro bono, including people who've worked in the FBI, to try and get Luke a retrial to try and get this in front of a new jury. And he was only convicted on a unanimous, uh, sorry, on a majority verdict, not a unanimous. So because of that, and in Scotland, they're not allowed to say how many people said guilty and how many people not. And there's 13 that sit on a trial. So it could have been six, seven. We don't, or it could have been, you know, 10, one. We don't know. Mm. I think that's an important part. And, Naomi, he only had about 30 minutes or something, didn't he, to commit this murder? Less than that, yeah. Very short time frame. Mm. That can also, her time of death has always been under speculation because she was found in the evening around 11 o'clock, but her body lay uncovered and exposed to the elements all night long before the forensic team got there the next morning. And there was um, precipitation in the air Mm. that night. Why didn't forensics come out that night or don't you know? There's no real clear-cut reason. It was availability. It was the middle of the night. They said it was dark and in a heavily wooded area, so it would have been quite hard for them. Um, In the meantime, some of the police officers, to access where Jodie was found, they had to cut down branches and shrubbery which again you know graham and jamie you've both worked in the police you'll know that that's not protocol because there could have been you know there were droplets of blood found on Mm. on some branches nearby so that really compromised the crime scene Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so i mean we're aware of dna and whatnot then obviously still not as advanced as now crime scene preservation is paramount it doesn't help that all the exhibits have now been disposed of does it no 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 there are some things that they have they have managed to retain um and there is an order going through to try and get them retested Mm. at the moment so Mm. 
I think there's a lot of people waiting with bated breath to see mm. what comes up. Yeah, because for the person who hasn't listened to this podcast, right, just for the for anyone who hasn't listened to this, is not aware of the case, hearing how Jody died, it's very personable and very personal. And you'd think, yeah, the boyfriend probably did have a hand in this because, you know, why would you cut off a breast or, or whatever? It's very or nearly decapitate someone, it's very personable, rather than just like an execution gunshot or whatever. But as a 14-year-old with no history, it's certainly raising some red flags with me. That person who committed that crime has serious mental health issues, uh, I would say. There is a very close family member of Jodie's that has been under scrutiny from people for a while it's only recently been exposed by someone who may you know maybe shouldn't have exposed it but somebody close to her who was seen with her within 15 minutes of her assumed death had very strong mental health issues was very very violent as well um, and had um, a legitimate mental health disorder but there are there are several suspects. Other well, I say suspects. I can't say suspects, but potential persons of interest in this case that that we do go through and we do examine in the podcast. And for me, I always thought from from the moment I heard about her murder that it was sexually motivated. If your breast has been cut off and you're naked and you've been bound, that to me screams there is something psychosexual in mm. in this whole thing. But the police have always been very adamant that they did not think it was a sexually motivated crime. And I still can't quite get my head around that. No. Mm. Just let me get this right. Luke uh, Mitchell had 20 minutes to rape her, strip her, bind her, cut her breast off, cut her throat. And then he's cleaned himself up, but then dirtied himself again so that he looks dirty. And then within hours, he's, um, he's in police custody. What evidence did they have then? What evidence did they use to say that he did do it? So there were three planks that the, the prosecution put forward, and it was number one, that he found the body. Um, he didn't find the body on his own. It was him, mm. his trained tracker dog, so a sniffer dog. Um, it was Jody's sister, Jodie's sister's boyfriend and Jodie's grandmother. So they were all out together. And the podcast, the, the, the sort of subtitle I've got is Through the Wall because they had to go through this kind of V-shaped hole in the wall, step over it, which is, you know, it's, I mean, you literally actually have to climb over it. It's quite high up, get to Jodie's body. So the other side of this wall was a, like a, a strip of woodland and that's where she was found. They actually walked past that V-shape, but it was the dog, uh, Luke's dog Mia, who sniffed and went back to the V-shape in the wall and kind of stood on her hind legs and was sniffing. And it was then that they decided to go, to go over the wall and that's when they found her. So that was number one. The other one was an eyewitness account. There were a few eyewitnesses that saw somebody that looked like Luke of Luke's description around the area at the time, but no one directly on that path by the V-shaped hole in the wall. Um, one of the main witnesses, her name was uh, Andrina. When they got to trial, she stood up in court and said, I can't identify that person in the dock as the person that I saw. 
So again, that was very, very, very telling. And the and, and Luke's alibi was also under under dispute. They relied on his brother. And his brother at first thought he was in the house and then he wasn't sure that he was in the house. The thing is, they asked him this, you know, a week after it happened. He was just, oh, you know, I don't know. And he, you know, it transpired that he was potentially watching porn in his bedroom. So, you know, he didn't quite sort of know who else was in the house at the time. And then he was sort of reminded by his mother that actually you know, oh, don't you remember that's the day Luke cooked dinner for us and he burnt the pies. And he was like, oh, yeah, we all had a go at him because he burnt the dinner. So again, I mean, we go through it in a kind of minute by minute timeline on on the podcast, but they were the, they were the three main planks that got him prosecuted. Three minor planks, I'd say. Well, yeah. Not mine. No. It was um, a trial by media. And I think this is probably one of the most important things is that you know, bear in mind, Luke was 14 years old. He was named in the press from the get-go. There were reporters outside his house. Um, and you can even, there's clips on YouTube where there are swarms, and I mean swarms, of paparazzi literally, you know, they're coming out of the house, they're in a car, and they are throwing themselves onto the bonnet of the car, trying to get a picture of him. It's crazy. It's crazy. And the fact they named him, they portrayed him as the local weirdo because, you know, in 2003, he did wear the kind of, you know, sort of like skater boy clothes. I was probably described them as he had a bandana in his hair. I would almost say, actually, I think in, in another interview, I perhaps described him as kind of a surfer boy Australian kind of yeah, look. Right. <laughs> but, that, you know, he kind of had that long blonde hair, that bandana in his hair. But people, that's not normal for small town Scotland. 20 odd years ago and so that was a big part of the the whole case i think as well right well definitely worth a listen yeah it's under season three if you just because it's all i've got four seasons it's just if you're interested in that one in particular it's under season three and you'll get to hear from luke in prison as well and i think you might be quite surprised at how articulate and intelligent he is despite living his whole adult life in prison Mm. Thanks for that, Naomi. Um, Thank you. Appreciate your time. Absolutely. We both uh, highly recommend the podcast series and all of Naomi's other true crime podcasts. She does a great job. She's a great reporter and, uh, and she does a thorough job. So we have placed a link to, to Naomi's podcast in the show notes. So that's it for episode 22, When Good Men Do Nothing. Perhaps it should be When Good Men and Good Women Do Nothing because currently in Queensland, we have a female premier, a female attorney general, and a female police commissioner. So at least one of them should have stepped up. There are things happening behind the scenes in relation to this case. We hold hope that the Queensland government, the attorney general, and the Queensland Police Service will be dragged all but kicking and screaming to coroner's court to hold a full inquest into the murder of Leanne Holland. We cannot say more at this time, but we'll update you on the next episode. Jamie is not kidding when he states these parties will be dragged kicking and screaming to an inquest into this case. Stay tuned. Don't forget to rate and review and subscribe to it. Who Killed Leanne Holland is a 610 Media production. This episode was written and fact-checked by Graham Crowley. 
The music for this episode was entirely produced by Bubba Beats. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Who Killed Leanne Holland and also at 610 Media Group. Also head to our websites and you can read our blogs and see pictures at whokilledleanneholland.com and 610mediagroup.com. And please, if you're enjoying the show, share us with your friends and don't forget to rate and review us. It does help. And a special thanks to Yamaha Music Australia, Audio Technica Australia, Zoom Australia, Isotope and Sound Theory. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.